0: I'm going to open us in a prayer here in just a minute, and uh, then I'm going to kind of get into our text. I'm going to start in Exodus 34, uh, if you want to open up there with uh, with me. Let's, let's go before our God. Uh, my God, I, I do, I pray this morning that you cause our hearts to be alert. I pray, Father, that we would sit at the feet of your word. And, uh, and God, I just want to lift up the doubter. I want to lift up that those that uh, that do, they struggle with you, your existence, your care, the relevancy maybe of your word. And I pray God that she would breathe clarity and vision in their experience. And I pray for those of us that have been maybe around your word or around religion all of our lives, and maybe it gets faded and it gets old. and it becomes routine, and we lose our passion. I also pray for clarity. pray for vision. Um, God, I pray that you would purify us in our hearts and our minds and our thinking, and fill us with your thoughts. Um, they've proven themselves. You've proven yourself, and I praise you for the beauty of the message um, that I pray would exist here this morning. It's in Christ's name, Amen. So I want to start next to this. I want to kind of uh, carry you into what I believe Paul's thoughts are at, at the close of. Um, Second Corinthians chapter three, which is kind of going to be the body of our text this morning. Uh, but he begins with these thoughts. This is this is the passage from Exodus thirty-four. Now this is when Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, okay? So that's where we're gonna begin here. Beginning in verse twenty-nine, the text reads When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant, because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, He removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak to the Lord. Uh, Now, what's so cool about Paul is, man, he grew up. This is, this is a guy that grew up a Pharisee. He studied the law all of his life. And I love to talk about uh, Galatians chapter one and other places where Paul refers to, um, the struggle it seems that he had in coming to Christ and having to make sense and rethink everything that he thought he knew. I don't know if you've ever been hit in your walk with God or your walk outside of God where you had a paradigm. You had a way of looking at religion or a God or a life. And all of a sudden, all of your values were shaken, shattered. And you had to rethink everything. Maybe you grew up in a form of religion that was extremely dogmatic, extremely legalistic, and you had these ideas in your mind that that's scripture. That's what that scripture teaches, or something like that. And all of a sudden, later in life, that foundation gets shaken. Um, that's what happens to m- many of us, and I think it's a beautiful experience in life where you have to rebuild from the ground up, what do I really believe about God? And that's exactly what happened with Paul, and he's rethinking this story. And he's thinking, man, isn't that something? Isn't that crazy? That when, when uh, the law was read, Moses put a veil over his face. Now, here's what's crazy, is in, in Jewish tradition, this is what Paul would have experienced. Walking around Jerusalem, walking around Jewish culture, you'd see men with these. They're much longer than these, but they like cost $200, so I didn't get one from my sermon. They're longer. They would have blue threads in them. And at the corners, uh, you would have what's called the tzitzit, and it's these five knots. And you've heard this before, and we've talked about it before, five knots at every corner. And it represents the law. And this, this prayer shawl is, would represent the law of God. So when a man would come before God in prayer, and you've seen images of this, they would do what? They do what's called tenting yourself. And they would put this over your face. Now, don't I look better? You put this over your face, and you're in your prayer closet, but it's represented by the law. When Paul says to the men, and I'm not going to go here today, but it's a crazy deep study. When you talk about head coverings in 1 Corinthians, and we were like, oh, should we cover our heads? Should we not cover our heads? Men, women, all this stuff. I'm going to tell you this. It's way deeper than most people think that study is. It's not simply a cultural, no, it's crazy. Because you know what he said was against Jewish culture. Men were supposed to cover their heads when they prayed with what represented the law. He says, men, do not pray with your head covered. Stop it. You appear before God face to face. Now it's a really deep thing what's happening there. But what I want to show you is this. He is fascinated by the idea that when the law was read, a veil covered their face. And Moses would come and appear before God in the tent of meeting, it says. And when he came out of the tent, his face was radiant. Now, my impression from the text is that this happened several times. This wasn't simply God Moses appearing before God, face shining, coming back down, veil, it gradually fades. It appears in the text that whenever he would appear before God in the tent of meeting his face would become radiant and he would come out and speak the word and then have to cover his face because of the fear it says that the people had of Moses man I'd be scared too this fear that you had of this man and he says isn't that crazy that whenever the law was read then a veil covered it and whenever the law is read today and whenever you come before God what what is this veil doing and he said, isn't that interesting that God does this? And he develops this idea in 2 Corinthians 3 about what this veil is. Even in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle later would become the, the temple um, of Solomon. That would be destroyed. Later it would become the temple of Herod. You just look at the maps at the back of your Bible. Did you know that every time, that, when it goes from the tabernacle to the temple of Solomon to the temple of Herod, every time, more walls and more veils were um, were installed. Every single time, a new wall or a new barrier or a new veil is added, to the point that by the time you get to the the, the time of Solomon, if you have what represents God in the the te- the Ark and the Table of the Testimony there in the in the Mercy Seat, you would have. The mercy seat. Then you would have the veil separating the holy of holies from the most holy place. Um, you would have another veil separating that from the court of the, uh, the, the central court out there. The, and then you would have the court of the women. And then you would have the court of the Gentiles. And each time you had a wall separating and separating. And Then finally a wall separating that which was impure, unclean, um, not worthy to come into the temple at all. Um, there were at least six walls dividing the people from God. Okay, this is what you're seeing. And, and, Mo, and Paul is just excited about this idea of the veil. Now I want to bring you into our text and look at what he says here. This is Second Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory... Fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For that was was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Uh, for now, f- before I finish this section, yesterday at uh, the Church for the Homeless, man, we had about how many people we have there? Was it like? We ran out of food. Uh, we, we, between 100 and 150, I think. Um, Uh, But it was crazy. We had a lot of people there. But one moment, this assembly was just incredible to me when um, Mario led us in prayer. And Mario got up and he said the most beautiful prayer. He said some really powerful things. And afterwards, I walked up to Mario and I said, I just want to say, man, that was beautiful. That meant a lot to me. He didn't say thank you. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me dead in the eye and he said, I believe it. And that meant the world to me. Um, I believe it. I'm not, I'm not trying to show people. I'm not trying to impress people right now. I'm not trying. To, no, I came before my God and I know that I came before my God. And he stood in the most humble way and he told everybody. He said, listen, I know some of you think this is a joke. I know some of you think that this is, he said, but I want to let you know right now. I'm not putting on a show. I believe this. I know this God. And I thought about my experience, and I've shared this with with some of you before, but um, I brought a paper Bible, which I don't use enough in in church, but we do the digital thing. Um, But I thought about this and my connection to this book. And when you come to church, most of us have gone through this experience. We stand here, and maybe I would represent it, but I know that we are a very poor representation as preachers of, of something so sacred as this, and I know that. But when we come, we sit before this book, right? And most of us go through the same thoughts. As, Man, is that something that is ancient? Is a joke? Is it irrelevant? And I've said before, I look at people and I say, but God also responds and he says, well, it might be irrelevant to you. But you also might be irrelevant. Um, the word of God to me is something, and this is something we're going to challenge together this morning in looking at Paul's words, is something to me that is the only thing in life that breathes relevancy into life. Everything else outside of it I would challenge is irrelevant. Um, and, but that's that's not something I like to take for granted because I remember a lot of my life I've challenged that idea and I've said, man, I don't know, man, these, these teachings, these words, I want to be free from that. I want to be free from religion. And then I got to thinking, and I want to share with you just a a few excerpts from my favorite chapter that anybody's ever written in life outside of the Bible. Um, um, But, um, slow down, Jeff. Sorry about that, Warren eh? I love you, Warren i I'm going to slow down. (laughs) Uh, When I run out of breath, I know you're going to... but I want to share with you some of these thoughts here in, in uh, just, just a moment, but um, it hit me. It's impossible to be free, really, in your mind from some control or outside influence. Um, how many of you guys are, um, I'm going to see Apple versus Android in this room, and I know some of you are like, I am liberated from both, but how many of you are Apple people? Okay, well, less than I thought. How many of you are Android people? Okay, I don't mean to slam Androids, but we are about 50-50. So I tried to go to Android, and the reason I had to go back is because of all the junk people put on my phone before I ever bought it. And I know Apple does it too, but I was like, how much junk did you put on this phone before you gave it to me? When I get a PC, uh, it's been a while since I've gotten one, you know the first thing I do, and I hope you do the same thing, I go through and delete everything I don't want, which is most of it. I even delete the games. I don't want junk on my computer that I'm not using. I don't even like you telling me where I'm going to store my documents. I don't like that control. You can tell I'm a control freak. I don't want that junk on my phone. I don't want it on my PC. But you come to realize, why did my PC, why did my phone come with all this junk on it? So the New Testament has this idea, and it really sticks out to me once I really observed that Paul goes there a lot. In Romans, he talks about it. In Romans 8 and other places, that we are renewing our minds. Constantly trying to renew our minds from all the filth and the junk that society has downloaded on it. I grew up and there's all these ideas, all these cultural, we talked about it class Steve's class this morning. Cultural concepts, ideas, the way we treat people, the things we value, was all downloaded into my system early on. It became a part of who I am, the values that I have, everything. It became a part of Jeff. And throughout my life, I'm trying to think, man, I'm free. I'm free. I want to be free from this kind of stuff. And God's word is going to speak and say, Jeff, you're not free. You are just clay that has been molded to fit a certain pattern. That's why somebody says it's a good idea to eat a Tide Pod. (laughs) And everybody's like, okay. And they do it. Now, if you don't know about that, don't know about it, but it's a thing. And so all of a sudden, everybody starts imitating a certain walk, a certain way of life, because we are so uncomfortable. Hang with me here. We are so uncomfortable in nonconformity, especially the people that pride themselves in nonconformity. We conform. It's hard not to. I almost rolled up my jeans this morning to make the illustration in the early 90s, we used to do this number. Admit it. If you know members only, you know swatch. You know what I'm talking about. We used to do this number, right? Please nod with me. I wasn't the only one. <laughs> I was going to make fun of it, and then Daniel got up here with his. Leave- ah! <laughs> uh, I guess it came back. But you, you start, you, you. St- You start doing these things. You start doing these things because everybody's doing it and you conform, right? Well, that's cool. That's great. We do it. We do it in our speech. Did you know that when you're in a conversation with somebody, sociologists will tell you, you conform your speech patterns to their speech patterns. You control your, but you, you conform your bodily movements to theirs. We do it even when we're not aware of it. We're constantly conforming to the way other people are acting and thinking. And it's so crazy and it's terrifying to me that Paul is going to come in and speak into the picture and he's going to say, listen, you aren't free from this. You are conforming to something. So Christ is going to give you something to conform to and Romans is going to take it a step further and he's going to say, and in doing so, when you conform to God and you conform to his will and you conform to his image, you prove, you demonstrate And you experience his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you experience the wisdom of God. Because, and I'm going to get back to our text. Because it is what you were designed for. It is living according to your design. Um, Most of you men are like me. And that even though you might have a tool for everything in your garage... You end up using whatever is simply convenient. If I need to hammer a nail in, instead of going to get my hammer, I use whatever hard object is close to me half the time. You know you do the same thing. Whenever you do something, you use things that are not their intended use, you use it for something different. Usually, disaster happens. We've got all kinds of, if you ask the men in here, we have all kinds of creative stories about trouble we've gotten into because we use something against its intended purpose. When is a bird, as a creature, incredible creature, when is a bird at its best when it's doing what it was designed to do? Fly, right? When is a fish at its best? When it's swimming. That's what it was designed to do. And God's incredible design is evident throughout creation. Something is at its best when it's doing what it was designed to do. Your life will frustrate you. No matter what you do and what you commit yourself to in this world. No matter how accomplished you become. Your life will frustrate you if you are living outside of your design. Your design is life in Christ. That is what you were designed for. This incredible verse in Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, says this. God made them in his image. Male and female, he created them. And it's one of those questions that throughout the years, scholars have debated. What on earth does that mean? And I'm not even going to get into it, but I'm going to imply some things. What does it mean to be made in God's image? What I have arrived at is this. Steve in his class this morning said, we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions when we come to Genesis. And we've asked a lot of wrong questions. I am convinced of this. Asking what does it mean to be created in God's image is the right question. Paul builds on that a lot. Except he puts a twist on it. I'm going to read some verses to you. It says this. First, I want to begin with the next chapter where um, Brad's going to be next week. It says this in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Genesis says you were created in God's image And then all of a sudden, in the New Testament, you see this, wait a second, Christ came in the image of God. But isn't that what I am? Well, this is what he says. he had said in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know as I am fully known. Romans 12, 2, I alluded to earlier. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by renewing your mind. That means get your mind back. Get it back from all the corruption that has been put in it. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Throughout the New Testament, this idea of being transformed back into the image of Christ, retaining that, not retaining, uh, renewing that image, because somehow it was lost along the way. Christ came to bring it back, and His Spirit within us would recreate that in us. Now I want to show you what I think He's doing and where we're going with that. The text goes on before I get to my C.S. Lewis. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit? Um, that last part of that verse is is super important to me because I think um, it's saying something that I've really believed for a long time. And it's this idea that maybe books like The Shack and other ideas have uh, explained God as though there's three different gods in heaven, but they're all on the same page. And you can call it trideism or Trinitarianism or whatever you want to call it. But the image of Christ that is painted in the book of John and in the book of Acts and certainly in the Bible is this. The spirit who lives in you is not Jesus' best friend. It is the spirit of Christ within you who is God, right? Now, that's a whole other discussion. I don't try to draw God but he says this, this is the very presence of Christ in your life. And this is why Paul gets excited about it. I'm going to use the vessel here in just a moment. Um, I would really encourage you to read this chapter because most of you are smarter than I am, but I had to read it like 10 times to even begin to grasp it, and it's super short. But it's called Meditations in a Toolshed by C.S. Lewis. It's the sixth chapter of his book, God on the Dock. And this chapter is just really blown my mind, but maybe it's just me. But he begins, and I've shared the first part of this before, then I want to quote some things that he says. He begins by saying this. I was in a tool shed. It was dark. I sat in the darkness, and I saw a ray of light peeking over the door. And I could see the dust particles, and I could study the ray of light, and I watched the ray of light. And then, after thinking about that ray of light and what it was, I went and stood inside of the ray of light, and I looked through it, and I looked through the door, and I saw a world, and I saw the sun, and I saw leaves shaking in the wind, and I saw this entire world outside. And he said, isn't that something? There's a difference between looking at something and looking through something. And he develops this further, and I'm just going to read some of what he wrote here, and then I'm going to compare it to what I believe Paul's saying here. This is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he's been trying to remember all of his life. Ten minutes casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. Now comes a scientist and describes the young man's experience from the outside. For him, the young man's exp- um, for him it is all an affair of the young man's genes and a recognized biological stimulus. What is the difference between looking along this impulse and looking at it? When you have gotten got into the habit of making this distinction, you will find examples of it all day long. The mathematician sits thinking, and to him it seems that he is contemplating timeless and spaceless truths about quantity. But the cerebral physiologist, if he could look inside the mathematician's head, would find nothing timeless and spaceless there, only tiny movements in the gray matter. He develops this further, and he says this, you get one experience of a thing when you look along it, and another when you look at it. It's been assumed without discussion that if you want the true account of religion you must go not to religious people, but to anthropologists. That if you want the true account of sexual love, you must go not to lovers, but to psychologists. And he develops this further, and this chapter goes really, really deep, way deeper than the next page just really messes with your head. But um, what I wanted to do with that is, that is what I believe Paul is experiencing when he talks about the law. There was a time in my life where the law was something I looked at. It was something that I wanted to be religious. I wanted to be a good person. When I was in high school, my parents can testify to this, and I, I, I love it. I, I get excited about it. But, man, I wallpapered my bedroom with Scripture. Wallpapered it with little Scriptures about that big. I put one up every single day until my whole room was full of Scripture. I carried a tiny Gideon's Bible in my back pocket and another Bible in my left hand or right hand. And then I went to school. And the Word of God was my life. I loved it. I loved to study it. And I'm not saying that to brag about myself at all. I'm excited about my zeal. But then I wanted to memorize Scripture, you know. And and you sit there and you want to show people. And so I memorized the entire genealogy of Christ. I memorized um, large portions of books. Um, Did all of these things. And it's what the Jews did early on. We say, man, I want to pursue this. And you study God's Word. And you want to sit at the feet of God's Word. But there's a problem within you. And the problem is you can study this all you want to. And it's like this pot. If I were conforming the outside of this pot to look beautiful before you. That's what the old law did. It's making this look beautiful and trying to get everything right. And you fail. And it ends up disaster and I can't get it right. And the master potter in the spirit, this is what Jesus promised was to his disciples. He said this, the spirit is with you, but he will be in you. It's a very strange thing that Christ says, I'm with you, but I will be in you. And when the potter reaches his hand on the inside of the cup, what happens? He begins to mold it from the inside out transforming who you are from the inside out, rather from the outside in. And so it's no longer a question of, is Jeff obeying the law? Does Jeff know the law? It's a question of, does Jeff desire the law? Many of you husbands and wives will get this illustration. You come home from work, long day, your wife wants to spend time with you. But you've had a long day, and maybe you're an introvert like me, and you're like, that time has not yet come. I need Jeff time right now, which unfortunately is a lot sometimes. And I need to spend time by myself or something like that. Now, Melinda, and we we don't have kids. We actually spend a whole lot of time together. But but Melinda will have this thing, and this is true of a lot of wives, and it's true of some men. We'll have this thing that, man, I want to spend time with you. But I don't want to make rules in our house to say, listen, this is how much time you're going to spend with me, whether you're talking about your kids or you're talking about your spouse. You don't make rules about how much time you want to spend. Why not? You don't want the action. You want the what? Desire. I don't want the actual action. I don't want to command that you come and spend time with me. No, I want you to want that. I want you to desire this. This is what's taking place in 2 Corinthians 3. There's a difference between trying to obey the law externally and saying, God, I want to do all these things for you. And the Spirit of Christ within us has this power transforming our very desires so that they are His desires, transforming us from the inside out. The the truth is about God and His nature and His character is that the Spirit of God within us actually transforms us as people. It says this in Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The truth about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is this. It actually does transform us in our sins and our desires. And if you've if you had this idea or this teaching all of your life that says, listen, it's who I am. I can't change who I am, which is, bear with me, because I promise you I've just got like two minutes right here. I want to tell you this. That is the philosophy of this world. I am who I am. Stop trying to change me. And I could apply that to a thousand different things. But the philosophy of this world is, don't be ashamed of who you are. Be who you are. Don't let anybody change you. And it's the fundamental difference between Christianity and the world. Is, I'm not who I am. I'm being transformed. I'm being changed. I'm being conformed into something that is so much greater and bigger than me. And the whole idea of being in Christ is saying, God, I give myself to you. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Transform me. Make me different. Make me new. And what ends up happening is we experience a life change and a beauty. And we know what it is to live according to your design. And that proves God's existence. It proves his presence. It proves his wisdom. That's what Romans 12 is saying. It proves his beauty by what you experience in Christ. As the Potter, that is the point, right? So I want to ask this prayer, uh, kind of over, over you guys, and I want to pray for this as we continue our study in in Second Corinthians. I pray that you keep that mindset, God. Keep transforming me, renewing me. I wish we could sit around right now and just share all the examples of people in this room that could say, the way I overcame this sin in my life was not simply the discipline to overcome the sin. It was that the Spirit of God inside of me transformed that desire altogether, and I no longer have it. I've heard countless testimonies to that in this room. I no longer have it. I now desire something that's altogether different. Um, we're on a journey together, every single one of us. And a lot of you have been in Christ longer than me, quite a bit longer than me, right? Right? And I know that you've got that experience, but I pray that you don't ever get to a point in your walk. And I pray I don't ever. And we hold each other accountable. I pray that I don't ever get to a point where I'm stagnant. And I'm no longer moving forward. I'm no longer transforming and I'm no longer allowing God to transform me into his very image. And so Genesis 1, this thing that we thought was just a theological thing. Well, what does it mean to be made in God's image? I actually believe, is the grand theme of all of Scripture. What does that mean and what does that look like? And I think Christ is the answer to that. That is what we're a part of. If you're not in Christ, and you come in here and you, you come to church and you look at it and say, man, I'm looking, I'm watching. I want to plead with you, and I love Daniel's thoughts this morning. I want to plead with you, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that in him, we would become the very righteousness of God. That's what he wants to accomplish in his people today. My God, I just want to come before you. And I ask God that um, we would that we just understand clearly that there are two mindsets in this world today. Uh, there is the mindset that I am who I am. And there's the mindset that I, I, I want to purify the system I want to erase everything that doesn't belong to you and I just want to fill my mind, I want to fill my heart with something that is, I was designed for. I praise you for the wisdom as, as difficult and as deep as I believe a lot of Paul's words are here. I praise you for the wisdom that's there and ask God that the veil would be removed completely in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. That we would stand before you in your radiance and that we would be transformed with ever increasing glory into your very image. I pray, God, that you would frustrate the plans of those that wish to rebel against you. I pray, God, that the path would get darker and colder the farther we get away from you, because it does. And I pray, Father, that you would would cause us to experience um, the coldness and the loneliness of being without you, and you'd cause us also to experience the fullness, the clarity, the vision that there is in you. Um. Thank you for these words, and I ask your blessing just over our families and over our body. It's in Christ's name we come before you. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.